So James chapter 2 is where we're at, okay? James chapter 2. Um, James, if you guys haven't figured this out, some of you know already, but um, James is a very practical book about the Christian life, an incredibly practical book about the Christian life. Whether you're here today and you are exploring the claims of Christianity or if you've been walking with Jesus for years, no matter, no matter where you fall sort of in that continuum, James is for you. You will find it, as we walk through it together as a church, incredibly helpful. Now, last week, we heard from Brother Lynn as he brought the word to us from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. And as we consider those words together, we found that God calls his people to not only hear the word, but also to be doers of the word. So we are to hear the word, we are to receive the word, But not just that, we are to respond to the word in obedience. I don't know about you, but last week I found it so helpful, so convicting. Essentially what we learned last week is that what we're doing here this morning matters. It matters. What we're doing right now, we have open Bibles, we are exploring God's truth. What we're doing right now, this morning, it matters, it's important. But at the same time, it would be a significant tragedy if we gathered here this morning to hear the word of God and then we left out those doors totally unchanged. That would be a tragedy. James would say that would not be impressive, okay? Not be impressive. What is impressive, according to James, is devotion to God that is manifested in real acts of love and righteousness. That's what James says is impressive. Belief that transforms behavior. Now, we saw it last week in verse, the end of chapter one, a couple of verses there, sort of three different expressions of what James calls true religion. If you have your Bibles open, just for a little review, look back at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Three sorts of expressions James gives us, bridling the tongue, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, and keeping oneself unstained from the world. These expressions will, for James, become sort of major themes that he will develop throughout his letter, and one of them we find before us this morning in James chapter 2, specifically that second one, visiting orphans and widows and their affliction. Expressions of faith, tokens of faith. So I'm going to read the passage for us. I'll pray for us, and we'll just dive right in. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, okay? James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you will pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you this morning just as we gather here um, for your word. Um, Lord, your word is powerful. Your word is true. It is convicting. It is comforting, Lord. It is profitable and useful, Lord, to conform us into the people that you have made us to be, Lord. As we look at it here this morning in James chapter 2, you have a strong word for us. You have an exhortation for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us this morning ears to hear, that we would hear clearly what it is that you have called us to be, how you have called us to live, and like we looked at last week, that we would respond, Lord, in obedience and faith to your word this morning. Love you, and thank you for the opportunity we have right now to look at it. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus, amen. Well, we are in the midst of graduation season. Many of you have been to graduation parties one after another, I suspect, in the last couple of weeks. It made me think of my graduation party. I graduated from high school. Uh, we had, I don't even remember what we ate. There's, I have one memory of my graduation party. This is my memory. It was uh, one of the last times I was with my grandmother, okay? And she, bless her heart, she was helping my mother prepare the food spread that was there in our house. And she had a bag of M&Ms, and she had a bag of Skittles, and there were bowls placed on the table. Now, my grandmother was early 80s when she passed away. I would be shocked and amazed if she ever ate a Skittle, all right? I would be amazed. She didn't know any better. She took the M&Ms, and she took the Skittles. She put them in one bowl and set them on the table. (laughs) Now, I love my grandmother, And I had not the heart to tell her what a catastrophe that was. (laughs) And so all throughout the afternoon, I found myself going back to that bowl and just eating M&Ms and Skittles all in one mouth. And it was just painful to say the least, okay? (laughs) If you can imagine the scene, the tragedy, if you can picture it, you don't take much convincing to realize M&Ms and Skittles, they just don't go together. They're incompatible, all right? Imagine it. Ah, sorry for that. Don't imagine it anymore. There are some things that just don't go together. Have you ever brushed your teeth and then had a drink of orange juice? No good. No thanks. It doesn't work. Incompatible. Apple phones and standardized chargers, like, they don't go together. Why not? Get with it, Apple. There are some things in this world 
that are simply incompatible with each other. What God's word tells us this morning is that faith in the Lord Jesus and favoritism towards your fellow man are incompatible with each other. They don't go together. Faith towards Jesus, favoritism towards men. No. They don't go together. This morning, as we look at this text, three things we're going to look at together to see this truth, this, this truth. We're going to look at first a kingdom principle, then we'll consider a major problem, and then finally we'll look at the only solution. First is the kingdom principle. James starts off right away and just states the principle. Look at verse one. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ should show no partiality. Some of your tr translations may, may say the word favoritism there. In place, this word is translated uh, partiality or favoritism, depending on your translation, and it's based off of an Old Testament phrase that, quite honestly, the New Testament writers, as they translated a concept or an idea from Old Testament Hebrew into New Testament Greek, they did what they would do occasionally, invented a word, it appears. And it's a word that several authors throughout the New Testament grabbed a hold of. Paul, Peter, Luke, James. It's a word that the New Testament Christians used to understand, really, how they are called to be just like their heavenly father. They are called not to show partiality, not to essentially make judgments or base preferences on exterior factors, preferring one person over another based on things like appearance, dress, status, race, gender, etc. on and on and on we could go. James says, doing that is simply unacceptable. Don't do it. It's incompatible for those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's the principle. Don't show partiality. No favorites in the kingdom of God. Now, he goes on to give us what is really an incredibly helpful illustration it's one that on a Sunday morning we can re really relate to, quite honestly. This is basic training for you if you're an usher or a greeter in this church. In fact, this is basic training for a member of the church. The next couple of verses, he just gives us an illustration that hits really close to home. He paints a picture. People have gathered, the, the God's, God, people of God have gathered together. My mind immediately goes to a, a worship service. There's some scholars that think it could be maybe a couple of different settings, but for Sunday morning, let's, let's imagine. A worship service, they've come together for the sake of worshiping God, God's people. And in through the doors walks two different individuals, two men who look totally different from each other. And because of their appearances, they are treated dramatically different by others. One shows up wearing a gold ring on his finger, dressed in fine clothes, and the second man shows up. This man is poor, and he's wearing, James calls, shabby clothing. Two individuals, they look really different. 
And James says, if you take the gold-fingered man, it's the translation, gold-fingered man, and say, here, sit in a good place, right up front, right next to me. And then take the poor man and make him stand back in the corner, maybe out of sight, or even worse, say, sit at my feet. Then what is happening? James is saying, you are making distinctions between the two. You are discriminating. You are playing favorites. Now, this idea of discriminating, playing favorites, making distinctions, it's, it's, it's a concept, sort of, that is related to some language that James has already used earlier in chapter one. There's, there's a verb that shows up that's very similar to what we see in chapter one of verse six where James uses a similar word to describe the divided, conflicting, the divided, conflicting thoughts of a person who lacks faith. See, where this sinful behavior comes, what James is saying, is it's coming, this, this behavior of making distinctions, it's coming from a sinful place in your heart. The improper divisions that are being made among visitors on a Sunday morning are reflections of the improper divisions that are harbored in the minds and the hearts of the people. Now, throughout this book, one of the illustrations that we've been sort of working with that I think it was in the first week is, you know, somebody who steps on, have you ever stepped on a one, one foot on land and another foot in a boat? Has anybody been in that sort of precarious position? This past week, I took some my boys canoeing. And don't have a great back, so lacking a little stability right now as it is. And there was a brief moment where I was terrified for my life. Actually, two moments, getting in the boat and getting out of the boat, where there was one foot on land and another foot in the boat. Unstable. It's a picture that helps us understand essentially what James is warning us of. Christians with one foot planted in the Bible with God while there's another foot touching down in the world, a way of talking, of loving, of acting. There's no basis for stability or being whole. What James is after is making consistently Christian conduct, showing us that consistently Christian conduct comes only from being consistently Christian in heart and mind. That's what he's after throughout the book, and we see it present right here. It's another example of the division, one foot in the world, while another foot in God. James wants us to be whole disciples. Now, here's the deal. From childhood on up, humans are really good at playing favorites. I don't know if you've experienced that before, if you feel that in your heart. We can be really good at showing partiality. The Old Testament phrase is called receiving a face. That's sort of the Old Testament language, receiving a face. That's how it's translated here. Receiving face. We can be really good at that, playing favorites. We make judgments based on appearances all the time. We're drawn to people that we like. Like magnets, we're pulled towards those whom we find to be impressive or successful or accomplished. And if we can sort of attach ourselves to them in some way, we will benefit. We like those who are like us. That's the truth. We're drawn to people 
who can help us, who can benefit us, who can make us look or feel good. That's the truth. Whether it's in school, deciding where you sit at a lunch table or on the playground, who you pick or play with. As kids, we can show partiality even as little children. It's at work or in the neighborhood, who gets the promotion, which home you buy, who you, what you think of your neighbors, who you spend time with. The kids you want your kids to play with. We can be really good at being partial. Now, here's the deal. One, one of the things I think that, you know, this idea of discrimination or making distinctions, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I think of the reality of discrimination, I can think to myself, hey, I'm not doing so bad at it. Because oftentimes we can think of discrimination as simply being acts of hostility towards those you don't like. But in reality, most of us struggle with, with discrimination it's not caused by acts of outward hostility towards those we don't like, but rather what it looks like in our life is showing ordinary favoritism directed at people whom we prefer. That's for most of us, I would suggest, what, what discrimination looks like. Not acts of hostility towards those we don't like, but acts of favoritism towards those whom we prefer. Humans are really good at playing favorites. Problem is, God does not. So you see the conundrum, right? He goes on in verses 5 to 13 to show us how significant of a problem this really is. This is a real, the amount of attention that he devotes in this chapter shows that it's a real problem for his readers, for his audience. And I would suggest for us this morning, it's a real problem for us as well. It's a real problem. We see it prevalent not just in our churches, not just in our culture, but also buried deep in our hearts, if we're just honest with ourselves. To help us sort of see the severity of the problem, James gives us several reasons why we should reject this attitude. Two reasons why we should resist favoritism, why it's bad, why it is a serious problem. In verses five to seven, he shows us that favoritism does not reflect the heart of God. Why is it such a big deal? Why so much attention? Because James says, this is not who God is. This is not who God is. Look at verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This is who God is. He gives us a picture of what God is like. And remember the early church, it was such a unique assortment of people. Those who were on the margins of culture, those who were often taken advantage of, who were neglected, who were oppressed. What made the early church so beautiful is those people who existed on the margins of culture were brought into the center of the church. Those people found a home, a place of belonging in the church. In fact, the vast majority of early Christians came from poor backgrounds. Now, it's not saying that the church is only for poor people. When you look at the early church, you see wealthy people there as well. Nor is it saying that, that the wealthy are not welcome. But it is to say favoritism insults and dishonors the poor, the very people who've been brought into the center of the movement. In Christ, the poor have actually become rich. This is the, one of the gl most glorious sort of reversals of the gospel. 
The poor have become rich. They are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God, be heirs to a major spiritual inheritance. He has chosen the poor to be rich. This is the way of God. This is who he is, not showing partiality like we are tempted to do. They're all throughout the Bible, you see this. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 16, 7, tells us that man, while we look on the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. On and on through the New Testament, Romans 2, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, it makes it very clear that God is not partial. God's not partial. This is how God works, and therefore, this is how we are supposed to work as a people. This is who our God is, and so this is who we are supposed to be. We are supposed to love and receive all. And when we do that, it shows that God's ways are becoming our ways. See, there's power in this principle, There's power here, so much power. In the world where the poor have been forgotten, taken advantage of, where they've been neglected or tossed aside, the church has the opportunity to say, not so fast. There's a different way of operating. We get our cues from our creator, our designer, who's put his image in every single person. And we have the unique opportunity, the tremendous privilege to see God's image in our neighbor, no matter how much money is in their account. If ever there was a community where all should be treated equally, where all should be welcomed, where all should be given a seat of honor, if ever there was such a place It's the church of Jesus Christ. This is who God is. And therefore, this is who we should be. God is not partial. And as his people, neither should we be. Now, the second reason why this is such a big problem is because favoritism reveals the scenario that James gave us, favoritism towards the rich man, casting the poor man aside, this reveals a failure to keep God's law. Look what it says in verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. See, favoritism breaks that law, plain and simple. When we make judgments or preferences towards other human beings based on appearances, we're breaking God's good and perfect law. That's the fact of the matter. That's what we're doing. James is quoting Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. This Old Testament verse was a verse that Jesus referred to most throughout his teaching, one of his favorite Old Testament verses. It's where Jesus went when he gave a summary of what the whole law was about. Loving others as ourselves sums up what God wants our attitude to be like towards other people. This is Jesus' summary of what God wants for us. It was the basis for one of his most favorite, famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story that he told to show us exactly what it means to keep the command. James refers to this as the royal law. Do you see that? It's an unusual phrase. It's the second time that he mentions it. It's the royal law. It's the law of the king. Not only because Jesus taught it, 
but also because he lived it. It summarizes not only his teaching on biblical ethics, it describes Jesus' very life. He says, you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he shows us in his life what that perfect love looks like. We think we see it in the carnation. In incarnation, when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, becomes our neighbor, lays his life down for us to show us the depth of his love. And we follow in his footsteps. We keep the law. We are living a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And the truth of the matter is, James goes on to say, if we break one part of the law, we've actually been guilty of breaking the whole thing. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. But if you show partiality says in verse 9, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The point James is making is that while you may see this little scene that he just described earlier as sort of just a little scenario, no real consequence, just a small thing, it's actually not a little sin. In fact, there is no such thing as a little sin. It's a big deal. And this one, this one commandment that's broken just sort of sets in motion a chain effect that breaks the entire law. It's as if you've broken the whole law. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Do you see what he's saying? This is not a small thing. This is a major problem, and with it comes significant consequences. Now, to make the matter even worse, if we pause and just look in our heart, I'm guilty as every every person in this room. There are people we prefer I wonder if there's names that show up on your phone. They're calling you. And when you see the name or that face, you think to yourself, here we go again. I don't have time for this. I would prefer not to talk to that person. I'm sure we all have people in our life that are like that. People that when you're walking your dog or you don't walk cats, do you? You do walk cats. Some, some walk for cats. Others pray for those who walk for cats, okay? <laughs> See, I'm showing partiality. I prefer dogs. Well, I guess those are dogs and cats. It's not human beings, so I can do that, right? When you're walking your beloved four-legged friend down the sidewalk and you see somebody walking in your direction, is there a moment when you evaluate that person to see if maybe you should cross the street, let them walk on the sidewalk, you step on the grass. If we examine our hearts and our lives, what makes this problem so significant is my guess is that there's people that we would put in the preferred category. Because we're sinful people who are so prone to play favorites. Every one of us, every one of us 
is guilty of that. I know I am. So finally, what's the, what's the remedy? Does G, James just sort of leave us hanging? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't. What's the solution? Sort of two parts to the solution. Look at verse 12. The first sort of part of the solution. How do you, what do you do with this significant problem in your life, plain favorites, and the judgment that it brings? You've broken the law, the whole law. First thing you have to do is receive the mercy of Christ. Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are able to be judged under the law of liberty. James uses this phrase, law of liberty, earlier in chapter one. Sorry, I said royal law. That was a mistake. This law of liberty is the one that he uses twice earlier in chapter one. Used it in verse 25. It shows us that the perfect law gives us freedom. And it's best for us to embrace his ways and to follow his law. It's the point he's making in chapter one. So we are to speak and act as Jesus would have us. But here, James tells us something else about this law of liberty. He tells us that it will judge us in some way. The law, you see, reveals or exposes the kind of people that we really are. Shows us what our faith is made of. One of the indicators that we've been saved by Christ is obedience to Christ. See this theme all throughout the New Testament, and certainly James makes a point of this in his book as well. He will go on to show us that true faith changes us. The way that we live, it looks different in our life. If we've really been gripped by the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you will visibly see that difference in our lives. How we speak, how we act, how we love. Faith produces action, and that action has a particular look. In verse 27, James says that it looks like looking after widows and orphans in their distress and remaining unstained from the world. It's the look of it. Compassion for the needy, mercy towards our neighbor. And this should not surprise us. This just makes sense. God's mercy is visibly seen in our lives when we show it to those around us. It's how you know you've received it in the first place. Folks, this is the gospel of Jesus. Though unlovely in his sight, marred with sin, do you know what Jesus did for us? He drew near to us. Shared himself with us, gave himself for us, offered new life to us. Blessing after blessing after blessing we receive in Christ. None of which we deserve. None of them can be earned. This is the mercy of God toward sinners. And when a human being receives the mercy of God, do you know what happens? It flows through them. This is the effect of an individual who understands what they deserve, yet relishes what they've received. They don't hoard it to themselves. They become transformed. They become mercy givers. Jesus himself said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Here, James says it another way. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Then he ends with an amazing declaration there in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
While he doesn't really spend a lot of time developing this idea, keep in mind his audience, followers of Jesus, people who understand that mercy triumphs in a simple yet astonishing way. How does it triumph over judgment? Recognize our sins and we repent, broken and grieving over them. Later in chapter four, he'll say, humble ourselves before God and he will lift you up. How does mercy triumph over judgment? It begins by recognizing and repenting of our sins to Jesus. Turning to him then, trusting in Jesus, knowing that he is delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We are sinners who can't get it together. We fail time and time again. Yet by our faith in Jesus, the Redeemer, God's mercy triumphs over judgment, the very judgment we deserve. What's the remedy? First is to receive God's mercy through Christ. Secondly, it is to treasure the glory of Christ. Receive the mercy of Christ and treasure the glory of Christ. That may seem unusual. It may seem like an unusual sort of term, but look at verse one. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is actually where James starts. What's the remedy for this partiality problem? Treasure the glory of the Lord Jesus See, why are we prone to partiality in the first place? It actually comes from a good desire. We, the truth is we are wired, hardwired for glory. We love it. We long for it. Think about the things in life that you love the most, that bring you the most joy, the most satisfaction. Maybe it's a loved one's face, the view of a mountaintop, the sunset. I think it was on Wednesday night when all that hazy, did you guys see that sunset? Glory. It was amazing, driving down the highway, the, 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 you almost had to stop. It was breathtaking. There's something inside of us that sees beauty in the world around us and longs for more of it. And James, James knows this about the human heart. In a basic day, we're overwhelmed with moments that reveal our heart's attraction to glory, the way we speak, think, act, make decisions. We're wired for it. We're looking for it around every corner. And this longing tells us a great deal about ourselves. Something wonderful, but something also sort of terrifying. You see, our good love can easily be twisted and corrupted all too easily. We can see human wealth, intelligence, strength, and we can find ourselves being far too easily impressed. C.S. Lewis says this about this idea. He says, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What's the remedy against partiality? 
treasuring Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James, remember, this is Jesus' brother. It's telling us that there is one person that exists who is of absolute beauty, truth, and power, one who's purely good. There's no dark side, no hidden secrets, no selfish motives. The one person who, the more you get to know, the more you understand just how much you can trust, who will never let you down. Jesus, the Lord of glory, the glorious Lord. You see it in his life, lived unstained in the world, pure, perfectly following the law, entered into relationships not thinking to himself, what can you do for me? He loved the broken, the sick people of the world, showing no one partiality. He spent time with children, widows, tax collectors, prostitutes. He welcomed sinners into his presence. He was a man full of grace and truth. He is the Lord of glory. You see it in his life. You see it in his death. As he's preparing for his brutal crucifixion, he cried out to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The, 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 the bloody body of Christ hanging on the cross is the Lord of glory. And you see it in his resurrection. Death could not hold him. The grave couldn't contain him. And rising from the tomb, Jesus proved he is exactly who he said he was. The Lord of glory. And what James is telling us is that you might believe in the Lord of glory, but you are still in love with human glory. What's the remedy for our partial hearts, receiving the mercy of God through Christ and treasuring Jesus, the Lord of glory, for just who he is. Parkview East, unless we are satisfied in, dazzled by, in love with the glory of Christ, we will be too easily impressed with the glory we see in others. And we'll be drawn towards it. We'll be partial. We'll play favorites. As one author puts it, the truth of the matter is the people you prioritize displays the glory you prize. How do you remedy Favoritism starts right where James starts in chapter 2, verse 1, by prizing Jesus, the Lord of glory.